Amen. Hey, my name is Scott Gill, one of the elders here at the, the Bethel campus, and it is an honor uh, to be able to serve in that capacity. Uh, some of you, because I know there's a lot of unfamiliar faces out there that I have, sorry, I apologize, I've not uh, had the chance to get to know you. You've not heard me preach before. Those of you that have heard me preach before, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for not moaning, <laughs> at least out loud. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, I think there are a few things you, you might want to get to know about me. I just thought this might be a good time to share some things besides being... Um, the purveyor of corny dad jokes. There are a few other things about me that may be worth noting. First, there's really nothing special about me except by and for Jesus Christ. And uh, so let's just kind of clear the air. Yes, I'm an elder, but I'm also a sinner. But first and foremost, I love the one, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ not being his last name, that's his title, the Messiah, the anointed one. By grace, through faith. He fully reconciled me to the Father through his work. Yeah, amen, through his work on the cross. His work, his grace through faith. And the same is available for you uh, by grace through faith. Second thing, I love the word of God. I love to study it. I love to discuss it. I love to discover it. Uh, as the psalmist wrote in, in 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. And in a world that we live in, it's a wacky world full of fake news, fake book, fake, fake, fake. This is solid. Peter wrote in his first epistle that, you know, the word is what develops Christ-likeness, maturity in the believer. Third thing is I love the community here at Bethel. I love to see the folks in the building, outside the building, serving one another through love. That is such, such a treat. And the fourth thing, I love animals. We have dogs, cats, cows, horses, chickens. I love animals. And what better way to start a sermon than with a story about an animal? His name is Figo. He's a service dog. And when Figo saw a school van approaching rapidly, uh, about to hit his blind owner, now his reaction wasn't exactly subtle. He broke free, and he thrust himself at the school van in an attempt to take the blow, shielding his owner, his blind owner, uh, from the van. Unfortunately, the van hit both the dog and the owner. Uh, her name was Audrey. It broke her wrist, her, some ribs, her ankle, and it left Figo, the service dog, badly bruised, banged up, and, and a deep cut on its leg, a deep cut that went to the bone. Fortunately, they both survived the ordeal. But later on, the police chief who was at the scene of the crime described Figo as a service dog that would not leave her side. Figo was there by her side and would not leave. He was there to serve her. He was there to save her. And, and I was telling this story with my wife uh, earlier this week, and it just brought to mind what a good servant this dog was. And I, I don't know about you, but, but deep in my heart, I just yearn for those, those words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're summoned to do. That's what we're commissioned to do. I don't care how you want to describe it. We're commissioned to be servants. You know, a lot of times um, the word chosen gets bantered about uh, in, in the church setting, you know. But if you look at the Bible, a chosen people is a people chosen to serve God. And so we're, we're chosen to serve. Uh, we're not um, chosen to be the frozen chosen. We're not called to be the frozen chosen or, or the sitting soakers or C.S. Lewis would say it, the, the passengers and the parasites. We're chosen to serve God. And so our commission is to a service. And in our service, 
we're to exalt Christ. Now, I know a lot of you serve here at Bethel, and a lot of you serve behind the scenes, not for the glory of men. And I just want to say as an elder, first of all, thank you sincerely, candidly. Thank you for your service. I know a lot of you serve in the community. A lot of you serve in your workplace. A lot of you serve at school. A lot of you serve at home. But in this letter, that, that uh, part of the letter that, that, that Peyton read, we're going to look about Paul and his service. And his service, his intent of his service was to do exactly that. It was to exalt Christ. So the question we might be facing, how do we exalt Christ in, in our service? And he answers that here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. So open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 1. In verse 24, I am not going to reread it uh, because Peyton has done so, but I, I do want you to know that as I go through this, I'm going to be reading from uh, the New King James Version. Uh, the ESV is probably going to be on the screen. I know some of you use the NIV, the NASB. It's, it's perfectly fine. The language in here is, is pretty clear cut, and so there may be some little nuances, but I, I do want to go right to the, the Scripture today. But, but let me just kind of set up uh, something here that, that what Paul is doing I think pertinently, practically, Paul is presenting himself uh, as a model of the Messiah's ministry. And I think we can learn from that. But he's doing this not for his own glory, and I think that's very important. He's not doing it for his own glory. He's doing it to exalt, to exalt Christ. There's a lot of background uh, and contextual information that we could go through, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. We've got a lot to unpack in these, these six verses uh, and I think Eric has done a, just a great job of talking about the purpose, the people, the place, the period, the perspective of the book of Colossians. But what I want to do is just kind of bring your mind, going back a couple of weeks ago, um, Paul opened the body of the letter talking about the person of Christ. If you remember that, the, the, the preeminence of Jesus. Then last week, Eric talked about not only the person of Christ, but now the work of Christ through the person of Christ in verses 20 to 23 and here in 24 through 29, we get the person of Christ, not through the, uh, we get the work of Christ, not through the person of Christ, but the work of Christ through the person of Paul. He's the model, the role model of, of ministry. So as we transition to 24 and 25, just, just look back real quickly to how Eric ended uh, last week in verse 23 with this. It says, of which I, Paul, became a minister of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the second time that Paul used that word. Uh, the first time is over in verse 7, where he's referring to Epaphras as a minister. We'll see in verse 25, he calls himself a minister. But I want to make sure that we understand the contextual meaning of the word minister. Okay, This is not a voca vocational pastor. Minister is from the word, the Greek word diakonos. We get our English word deacon. Jim Phillips is our deacon on duty today. A deacon or a diakonos is one who serves, all right? It's one who renders a service. And in the context here, Paul is not talking about the office of deacon. He's just talking about service. Those who serve are ministers of Christ, and we need to get, keep that in mind. He's speaking solely about his ministry of service. So look with me at verse 24, and here's my, my first observation of the text. My first observation of the text is that a minister, a servant, a minister has a motivation. A minister has a motivation, which is the church. Read with me in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, 
that is the church. Paul's ministry of the gospel of Christ was motivated by the benefit for the church. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to, to three things here um, in the text. First, he has the attitude in his motivation. Secondly, he has the object of his motivation. And in between those two, between the attitude and the object of his motivation, there's some bit of troubling phraseology that we probably need to, to spend a little bit of time on. So we're going to talk about the attitude of motivation, the object of motivation, and we'll, we'll address the, the, the troubling phraseology uh, that's in between. First, when we look at the attitude of, of, of motivation, we see these two aspects. We see his joy and his sufferings. Isn't it kind of odd that when we look through the Bible, we, we see joy and suffering together? They're like hand in glove. You know, and, and Paul's not the only one that writes about this. James wrote in his epistle, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, right? Peter wrote about it. You know, P Peter says it this way, because in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoicing is an attitude. An attitude is the one thing you can't control. Matter of fact, in the, the epistle that precedes this one in your, in your Bible, Paul's letter to the Philippians he commands, he, he exhorts, he gives the command for the Philippians to rejoice. And here Paul just acknowledges that joyful mindset in the face of his sufferings. But there is a little bit of, of a twist here. Uh, when you look at what Paul is talking about in Colossians versus what James or Peter talked about, James and Peter, they were encouraging Christians in their trials because those trials were being used to, uh, to, to shape them, to mature them into Christ's likeness. Paul here is just a little bit different. It still has that end in mind of Christ's likeness, but Paul's sufferings are not for his sake, they're for others' sake. And I think that's uh, important when we look at the model of ministry, the model of servanthood. It's, it's others-focused. So let's read on in verse 24. It says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, scholars, theologians, uh, those guys with far greater intellect than me have, have, have wrestled with the phraseology here uh, through the centuries. Again, the New King James says, fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, the various popular translations that you're probably looking at, ESV, NASB, NIV, uh, I, I think the New King James Version does a really good job of transliterating the Greek although I'm not so sure it really adds a lot of clarity to it, uh, because what, what, what is the, the things lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What could that possibly mean? I mean, what could possibly be added to the cross of Christ? Well, the answer to that is absolutely nothing, right? It was a finished work on the, on the cross. So we know that's not a theological uh, angle, and we know that's not a Pauline uh, construct, but there are a handful of well-studied opinions and, and I think we see a lot of eschatological aspects to this, this passage here. Uh, and there's certainly some of those attributes, I think, that you could pull out in that phraseology. But that's probably a little bit deep and more than we need to go into today. I, I think it's really better to, you know, the, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, silly, right? Some may, people may use a different S word, but keep it simple, silly. Um, and the simple approach is this. Christ in us suffers along with us as we suffer for him. Christ is the head of the body. So when a part of the body is afflicted, Christ is not separate from that. 
You know, I, I, you know, Paul's writing this, and when you go back to when Paul was Saul, right? Go back to Acts chapter 9, right? There's Saul persecuting the church, causing the church to suffer on the road to Damascus. He gets an encounter to Jesus, with Jesus, right? And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Saul goes, who is this? Jesus says, I, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, right? So that is great comfort to know that when you're suffering in your service, yeah, Jesus is not far. He's near. He is very near. And I just think that is such an encouragement that Paul is giving his readers to know that Christ is with him. He's very near, and he welcomes it. He, he welcomes the sufferings for the benefit of the body of Christ, which brings us to the object of his motivation, which says this, for the sake of his body, which is the church. His motivation for service was the benefit of others. So how do we think about this verse today? Well, I think, obviously, attitude is something we can control. So it demands that we put on joy, that we prepare to suffer, and that we perform for his church. Think of Figo, the service dog. Now, i got to be transparent here, <clears throat> perfectly transparent. I struggle. I struggle in my attitude. That's my wife. Uh, joy it can, can be hard, uh, especially when you're doing something that might not seem joyful. But again, it is something that we can put on. I want to share a little story with you. Um, it's helped me in my perspective on finding joy. I, I hope you, you find it useful. It says this, both the hummingbird and the vulture fly over our nation's deserts. All vultures see is rotting meat because that is what they look for. They thrive on that diet. But hummingbirds ignore the smelly flesh of dead animals. Instead, hummingbirds look for the colorful blossoms of desert plants. The vultures live on what was, they live in the past. They fill themselves with what is dead and gone, but hummingbirds live on what is. They seek new life. They fill themselves with the freshness and life. Now, here's the wrap. Here's the wrap. Both birds get exactly what they're looking for. We all do. So how do you exalt Christ in your service? Put on the right mindset. Joyful attitude. Recognize it's going to be hard. And be motivated knowing that your service is for the benefit of the church. My second observation of, of the text is found in verse 25. Not only we, uh, to be rightly motivated, a minister has a mission. A minister has a mission given by God. Look at verse 25. He's continuing on about the church, of which I became a minister, a servant. We've talked about that. According to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Through God's administration, through God's stewardship, Paul was gifted. He was granted his mission. Let me just make three, three quick comments here about this verse. Um, first of all, Paul's ministry is opposed to the false teachers, and we're going to you know, see more about the false teachers as we, we unpack the, the letter to the Colossians. But his mission, his ministry was directed by God. If you look at the Greek here, it says, of which I became a minister. He, he writes this emphatically. Uh, Transliterary says, I, I became a minister. And that's where we see that Greek word minister, diakonos, one who renders service. Paul, you know, Paul opened the letter with his business card, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he goes to Paul as servant, right? 
He doesn't play that. He doesn't draw off the apostolic authority that he has. Rather, he emphatically calls himself a servant. It's just like those serving in the nursery. They're ministers of Christ. Those serving communion, they're ministers of Christ. Those who prepared the elements, they're ministers of Christ. Those in the worship team, ministers of Christ. Those in the back of the room at the audiovisual, they're ministers of Christ. Ministers are servants. And Paul's call to his ministry was not through some group or even himself. He was called to the ministry according to the administration or the service, uh, stewardship of God himself. But note this. Note, note the second thing here in that verse, in verse 25. According to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. It was given to him. Now, Paul would have considered what was given to him something that was granted, something that was bestowed, because what was given to him was of great value. But, but, but note this. This is what is so cool about this. Great value, but what does he do? It was given to me for you, right? It was given to me for you, right? And so he once again is making note in your service, in your ministry, the benefit goes to others. Christ to me, Christ in me, Christ through me, Christ out of me for the benefit of others. Yeah, that is such a great way to think about serving it because you're a vessel, right? You are nothing more than a vessel. It's Christ working through you for the benefit of others. Third thing in this verse, which I, I think is very interesting, is uh, his ministry is to fulfill the word of God. Now, your version might be a little bit wordier and say something like, to make the word of God fully known or so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God or to present the word of God in its fullness. All of those are are perfectly fine, but I do think the the simple language here in the New King James uh, that says to fulfill the word of God does have some eschatological uh, meaning to it. It seems here that, that Paul is writing and speaking to the fullness of the word going out. We still look at Colossians today, you know, some almost 2,000 years ago. The word of God does not return void, right? So how might we think of verse 25 today? Well, look, know this. God's stewardship in this church age is unchanged from the time of Paul. You might not get your commission through a, a road to Damascus encounter. You might. But you have his written word, you have his Holy Spirit, and there is a commissioned mission or two or three uh, for you. But we need to be looking for those opportunities to serve. We need to be looking rightly. We, we can't just be grasping at straws, looking in the dark. And, and let me just share a little illustration with you. Back in the days before electricity, a tight-fisted, tight-wadded farmer uh, was kind of taking his, his hired hand to task because a hired hand would, would carry a lit lantern to go calling on his best girl at night. So the tight-fisted farmer confronted him and said, hey, why, when I went to court and I never carried one of them things, I always went in the dark. To which the hired hand said, yes, and see what you got. (laughs) Now, you know, um, look, the the point of the illustration is, is this. You have at least one ministry that's been granted to you for the sake of the church. You are a commissioned diakonos. The question is, how do you discover it? So I'm going to make a suggestion to you. Your ministry is no further than the person next to you. You ever look at the Bible and just see how it's chock full of one another's? Jesus said, love one another, right? Peter said, show compassion for one another. Paul said, serve one another. It is all full of one another's. Your, Your mission is probably right next to you. 
fulfill that mission. My third observation from the text is this. A minister has a message. A minister has a message. It's always Jesus, right? Look at verses 26 and 27. 26 and 27 says this. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages, from generations, and now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul's message was Jesus. He proclaimed the mystery of Jesus now revealed. The nations could be fellow heirs with Christ, not just entrance into the kingdom, possession of the kingdom. Now, recall that in the Bible, a mystery is a truth previously hidden, now revealed. And Paul kind of gives the reader's digest version of that here in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 26. If you want the full read, go to Ephesians, another prison epistle he wrote, Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, you'll read more about the mystery now revealed. But what I want to do in, in the time that we have is um, really just look at two aspects of the riches of his glory of this mystery, and that is Christ in you and the hope of glory. First of all, Christ in you speaks to the present. The moment that you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were declared righteous, not made righteous. You were declared righteous. You're regenerate. You're born again. That is, you have your one way, non-refundable, non-redeemable, redeemable, though you're fully redeemed, ticket to heaven. The theological term is justification. Yet, the reformist Martin Luther wrote this, Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified, yet still a sinner. By faith alone and Christ alone, you've been saved from the permanent penalty of sin, but now you still have this corrupt nature about you. You're not yet glorified, but where you're free from the, the, the presence of sin, but in your present state, Paul writes in Romans, he writes in Galatians, that you're free from the power of sin in your sanctification. And at that moment of initial faith, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, Christ in you, sealed, and it's permanent. So I think we all can agree that Christ in you uh, is a wealth of beyond measure. But let's look at that second phrase. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I think this phrase, and this is, is my interpretation of it, I think it, it amplifies and it accentuates what we just saw. But I think there's another aspect to it that goes beyond the amplification that says that there's a greater abundance in eschatology. That is, the sharing in the fullness of the glory yet to be revealed. Romans 8, 17 said, because of this I consider the sufferings of the present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He writes in Corinthians, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he writes in this epistle, we'll get to it eventually. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. There is a great event yet to unfold the revelation of Christ's glory. Now, look, my wife and I are both 
graduates of LSU. We enjoyed the college life, maybe a bit too much, uh, that was offered in Baton Rouge, including Saturday night football games in Tiger Stadium. I really enjoyed the, the 2019 football campaign that won the national championship. Um, since then, not so much, but uh, we, we enjoyed that, that time of, of watching uh, LSU win that championship. But I was puzzled. I was, I was puzzled by that because it seems like a lot of people were, were celebrating, maybe rightfully so, I don't know, but, but myself included, we were celebrating in that. But I started thinking about that. I mean, the trainers, the staff, the coaches, the players, I can really understand their intimate celebration. They were contributors. They were participants in that. I was a spectator. They say I was a pretender. Uh, Joe Burrow uh, I think really got to enjoy um, and celebrate because he was a participant, and that's far greater and more intimate than anything a pretender could enjoy. So th there's something that, that's magnitudes grander than, than a football championship, and God has granted you the opportunity to participate in that at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter in his epistle, um, he speaks to obtaining the outcome of your faith. I think it's a lesson tied to Matthew 16. I'm not going to go back and re rehash that. Go look at Matthew 16 this week and, and see that the transition from Paul proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah to, to kind of getting spanked for having the arrogance to tell Jesus that it, you know, he, him dying ain't going to be so. Uh, but Jesus ends that with, with a lesson um, that says this, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Can you imagine hearing those words from Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. To be rewarded with what the Bible calls crowns, not really of works that you've done, although you were the vessel by which they were achieved, but you get to lay those crowns at his feet. The revelation of his glory is going to be just phenomenal. But I think what Paul is getting to here is not so much what's in it for me, what's in it for others. Don't you want others to be a participant in that? Because ministry is about others, and that brings me to the fourth observation here in verse 28. Paul writes, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Again, the message, Jesus, Him we preach. But let me just bring to note four interpretive items in verse 28. First, Paul shifted from first-person singular to first-person plural. In uh, discourse, you kind of want to know why that is so. Why did he go from I to we? And I think it's purposeful. I think what he is trying to do is he's bringing Epaphras into the, 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 the same mix here. Remember, there's going to be a battle of false teachings going on in the church in Colossae, and he wants to build some credibility with Epaphras as their leader, as their minister. So he does that, he builds his credibility, he brings Paphras into it, and he says, note, note this, Paul's selection of the word for preach, him we preach. The Greek word is kataangelo, kataangelo. It's a compound word, kata, meaning according to, angelo, meaning to message. And if you think about it, that's the verb form, angelo. Uh, the, the noun is angelos, angel, messenger, right? You, you've heard that before. And when you think about this word, it's really a way of which you send out a message, and that message is supposed to be extending outward. The gospel of Christ goes out. You know, in the old days, the king would send a herald, would send a messenger, and that messenger 
would speak the king's words and only the king's words. So what Paul is saying is that he and Epaphrasus, they, they're, they're speaking only the king's words, right? They're not false teachers. What they say is true. The third thing here to note in verse 28 is, is this. The, the message is not some guilt trip to Compliancevale. It's not some prosperity gospel. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. The word of God ranges from warnings to teachings. These are supposed to be proclaimed through his wisdom, through all wisdom. And as I read this and studied this, it just brought to mind um, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And what was the reason for that? The reason was to make one perfect, to make one complete, to make one mature, and to be equipped for God's works. The last thing here in verse 28 is um, is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Again, that's, it's his purpose statement to verse 28, so that we may present every man perfect in Christ. The sanctification of everyone was Paul's aim, his goal, his mark, to present every man perfect and complete. So today, I, I, think, as I think about this verse... Um, I think what we need to do is we, we look about our teaching, the, the available resources we have uh, available to us with regard to teaching. We need to, we need to test those. We, we need to verify those through, through Scripture. When Jesus was praying, you know, the Upper Room Discourse in, in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 16, it ends with chapter 17, and he's, he has this high priestly prayer. And, and part of that prayer, Jesus says in, in chapter 17, verse 17, it says, your word is truth. Your word is truth, Right? God, your word is truth. And then he prays for his disciples, I think by application for us, sanctify them in truth. So as we go about our ministry, we need to sanctify others in truth. Remember the, the, the service dog, Figo? His, his mark was Audrey, right? Uh, think of the Great Commission. When Jesus was with those 11 disciples, um, he gave them this command. I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, when you go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, with the gospel, make disciples. He didn't say sanctify yourself. He said make disciples, sanctify others. And so when you serve, do you make others your mark? Do you make their sanctification your mark through lowliness of mind, that's humility, through uh, the elevation of others through works, that's agape love? Do you make the sanctification of others your goal? My last observation, we, we've talked about a right motivation, a mission, a message, uh, a mark. The last thing about a minister is this. A minister has a means. Christ in me. Go to verse 29. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works mightily in me. Paul laid out that ministry is hard. It's hard work. Accomplished through Paul, but not by Paul. Accomplished through Paul, but not by Paul. Paul had a means to his ministry. So let me uh, draw three things to this. First of all, the, we see the word, I also labor, all right? Now, um, I hate to say the word hard work, but it is. Ministry is hard work. The Greek word here is kapiao, and it speaks to hard, difficult, wearying labor. And, and note that it's in the present tense. It's not like a once-and-done thing. I continue to work hard. I continue to toil. I continue, continue to labor 
in my ministry. Second thing, note the, the modifying participle there. In the New King James, it's, it's translated striving according to his working. Uh, the ESV says struggling. I really like uh, the NIV. I think it says something like, um, uh, how's it go again? Um, strenuously contend. I like that, strenuously contend. Because the, the Greek word here talks about a struggle, a fight. Um, it, it, it's, it's something that's, that's you, you just got to put a lot of intense effort into it. And, you know, it's, it's very Pauline, right? He always talks about these athletic terms, these, these military terms. And I think that's, that's what he's doing here, letting you know that it's hard work. When you're working in the nursery, um, there's a lot of effort involved with changing poopy diapers. It's hard, right? I don't like poopy diapers. But it, it's hard work in that respect. But as Eric noted just a couple of weeks ago, what I really love about Eric's illustration of this, it was great. Jesus, you're worth it. And Paul's just saying, Put the right attitude to that. Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth changing the poopy diaper. I'm going to serve this baby. I'm going to serve the parents so they can go and attend service. Third thing here in the last verse, Paul acknowledged that he had help, as do you. He had this super-duper cosmic eon-like battery that dwelt inside him, as do you. It didn't mean that Paul didn't get tired. He did. It didn't mean that he didn't have emotional strains. He did. But Paul learned. He learned. I'm going to call it experiential sanctification. He learned to be content in all situations, which is why he could write to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ because of Christ, because Christ is a power base in me. Service is hard. It's joyful. It's beneficial. And oddly enough, it's, it's restful. So look to the source. Not yourself, but Christ in you. Plug into it. I don't know about you, but the year 2022 has just uh, been a doozy for my wife and I. Um, there's a lot of things that have happened uh, in our lives and the lives of our friends, and um, it's, it's been hard. But uh, a mentor of mine, a professor from school, uh, wrote this a few weeks ago, and I found it comforting, and I hope you do as well. He says this, all of us must endure the vexing vicissitudes of this life. No, he's a professor. What do you expect, right? All of us must endure the vexing vicissitudes of this life. Like I said, he's a professor. And um, in fact, that is a biblical promise and a human certainty. The Lord does not shield us from these unwanted situations as he leads us into unmapped territory. But by exposing us to impossible circumstances, it is meant to drive us to him and find our adequacy in his arms and not our own. Watching others, watching others rightly navigate their trials is a ministry to me. As Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, there Paul describes God as the God of all comfort, the one who comforts in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is Christ to me, in me, through me, and out for others. So how do you exalt Christ in your service? Step up, step out, step in. You pick the adverb. As long as you're stepping in step with the Spirit, you'll be able to exalt Christ in what you do. Hey, let me uh, close with a couple of things here. Um, just a couple of quick items. Uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has modeled, I think, for us 
ministry that exalts Christ, motivated by joy for the benefit of the church, according to the mission granted by God with the message of Jesus Christ, marking the sanctification of others through the means of the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize that I'm not of the caliber of, of Paul, but like Paul, you too, we have the same internal source, the Spirit of Christ. Christ in us to work through us so that the message and works of Christ flow out of us for the benefit of others. That's how you exalt Christ in ministry. So let me just close with one illustration, and I'll be done. It's just an application of everyday ministry. Um, it uh, was modeled to me personally, and uh, anyway, uh, many years ago, my mother was diagnosed with a form of cancer that had an extremely low survival rate. Um, and I was there when we met with the doctor uh, to go through her treatment options and the prognosis and, and, and all of that. And, and to my shock was my mother's demeanor during this time. Um, and I, I, I just won't forget it. And there was, there was no grief. There was no bucket list of things that she wanted to do or even that thought. Her, her one single thought, and, and she talked about this repeatedly, was what does God want me to do with this? And so she spent her remaining time seeking out those one another opportunities, babysitting, caring for others, ministering to others, showing compassion, loving. Um, she did that. And, and, and I can remember... Um, there towards the end as she progressed, and I mean progress, not regress, as she progressed from home to hospital to hospice, that's what she did. She looked for opportunities to serve one another, to exalt Jesus, and, and she was blessed. Um, beyond any understanding, the peace of God was on her. She finished her journey home to the Lord. She modeled ministry. So God's chosen you to serve. He has, and I want to encourage you uh, to continue in your service, look for those one another opportunities, and be sensitive to his calling. He might have something great out there for you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Lord, you are so good to us. Um, and, Lord, just uh, that song is just going to be echoing through my mind today. We anxiously and eagerly await the return of you, Jesus, for restoration the ultimate restoration, Lord. And uh, while we wait, may we be servants wide awake, looking for those opportunities to serve one another, to come alongside one another, uh, and just to look out for one another for their benefit, for their glory uh, in uh, their sanctification, Lord. God, you are so good. And uh, again, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen.